please be seated. We're still in Jerusalem. Today's passage depicts another in a series of attempts to derail Jesus. Herodians have joined the effort, and before long, the Sadducees will too, as the intensity builds. For some weeks now, our gospel stories have been describing this ongoing exchange between Jesus and local leaders who are set on destroying him. They see him as personally posing a threat to the established power structures in which they comfortably feature. Matthew brilliantly uses both parables and acted-out parables, various as they are in detail, to allow a common theme to rise. That theme is this. How aware are we of the choice we're making in the face of a challenging circumstance? The spiritual choice. And are we aware that the challenge in the choice has only to do with love? That is, how are we showing love in the world? It was only the previous day that Jesus' interrogators had grilled him about where he gets ecclesiastical authority. Having failed in that attempt, they recruited Herodian reinforcements and are now trying to engage Jesus in a way more potentially damaging discussion of civil authority. Other ancient sources tell us that both Pilate and Herod were in the city at this time, so Jesus' enemies are seeing a great opportunity. On one hand, if he dares advise against paying Caesar, they could immediately have Roman authorities charge him with sedition. On the other hand, if he advises payment of tribute, it would shock a great many deep-rooted sentiments and alienate a multitude of affections. Jesus' double reply deftly removes him from this trap with reference to giving secular authority its due and giving God what is God's. And yet that's not a fully resolved or entirely comforting answer, is it? Nonetheless, it offers a typically brilliant Jesus gateway. What if the ambiguity is meant to invite agency? What if both sides of the coin in question are meant to draw you into a process of personal discernment as to next best steps? I should say baby steps about the civic side, the giving to Caesar, because choosing love feels particularly wonky there. Do I pay taxes and support maybe some infrastructural stuff, but also a dangerously corrupt governing system? That's a tough one. It's the kind of thing we still struggle with today. In other places in the gospel, Jesus offers a method for conflict resolution, one that has nothing to do with retribution, but instead behaves more like restorative justice. It goes like this. Try to resolve the conflict between two. If that doesn't work, bring in a couple of others to witness and counsel. And if that doesn't work, bring the matter before the entire community. While there's some application regarding paying taxes here, the most radical thing about Jesus' conflict resolution is that he never counsels punishment or violence of any kind in thought 
word or deed. So then, as we apply this kind of thinking to civic authority, can we be guided by Jesus asking, can you show me where the love is? Does parting with coin mean as much to you as acting out of love? Is your heart with the coin or with God? Must you give away your peaceful heart along with the coin that you give to Caesar? And if those questions sound a little like Jesus, what happens when the question of giving to Caesar and or God begins to hover over the current escalation of conflict in the Middle East? Baby steps. What if the modern question of giving to Caesar has to do, at least for the sake of current affairs, with the struggle for control over Gaza? Does the power Caesar wants in first century Jerusalem equate in any way with the power sought in Jerusalem today? If so, then what's up with Jesus' conflict resolution method? Can you even imagine trying to settle the Middle East with a restorative justice model? Talk about taking micro-mini baby steps, itsy-bitsy steps along a dark and confusing path that is, don't forget, loaded with emotional landmines. A reality that, like the whole Christ event, can begin to look to modern eyes like a failed experiment that is destined to fail over and over again. Baby steps. Now we have to draw the civic curtain aside in order to look more closely at giving to God what is God's. And you see what's most recently surprised me is how necessary it is sometimes to take baby steps even when it comes to giving God what is God's. And I think I've found a new depth of meaning here, and frankly, a lot of what I've said so far has been meant to bring us to this very place. When war broke out on October 7th, when an extremist organization brutally massacred innocent Jews, and yes, do pause and notice what those words feel like. Massacred innocent Jews, ostensibly in a pushback against a government system as mixed with nobility and corruption as any in Earth's history. When that happened, the spiritual landscape of the world, yes, I would say the entire world, was destabilized. Once again, agonizing pain rises in our midst, ghoulish, in some cases taking forms all too familiar and shockingly detailed, in others spectral, not even images, simply harrowing shadows impossible to explain. Maybe it's always the case that when such catastrophes happen, it is in our nature to seek resolution, and even more to seek the kind of satisfaction, even though it is a false satisfaction that comes from blame and punishment. So I was especially glad to embrace the suggestion that rose up out of our evening prayer group that maybe the best thing we can do in this moment is to reach out to our Jewish and Palestinian loved ones and listen, just listen. 
It seemed simple enough, comforting even. The thought of making an encounter with love in hand and not even having to function. Just allow God to be present in this kind of Hallmark card way. Sounds like the perfect thing for an unstable spiritual landscape in the abstract. But like any time we choose nonviolent response, what's left on the path with us is a whole lot of feelings Hallmark doesn't seem to know much about. I'm not sure I know anybody who identifies as Palestinian. I do know and love very much quite a number of folks who are Jewish. My second husband was Jewish. I'm still quite close with his family. I also have Jewish friends, some of whom are observant and others not so much, who are interested in my vocational pursuits and keep tabs on me. Some even have current knowledge. I heard from one last week, a social worker and journalist in Vermont, who sometimes tunes in to check and see how a faith community like ours addresses what's happening when spiritual landscapes erupt. She haltingly shared with me how disappointed she was that our worship last week seemed to have been something of a missed opportunity. I confess I was taken aback. Until then, I had felt reasonably capable, relatively comfortable with choosing absolute de-escalation and offering a call to prayer. Why was I suddenly squirming? I felt real gravity in this moment. And because I love this friend so dearly, for once I managed to quell my inner mansplainer and did what I had been sure would be of great comfort. I listened, and as I listened, my own spiritual landscape destabilization spiked. So I started to watch. I watched the players in my own interior as they gathered little jigsaw puzzle pieces of rationale meant to defend prayers for peace and the not taking of sides. And our talk continued for some time until a little light began to glimmer and I began to see in a new way how our personal histories inform us so powerfully. And there began a new kind of clarity about how all losses are attached and that maybe the opportunity that was missed in our worship was partly about the fear of being seen as taking sides. And yet what was happening in this experience of listening was more, is more, is much more about lifting up injured, frightened, grieving sisters and brothers, children so many of whom flow into our love lives, textured so deeply with embodied trauma, the likes of which leaves them not so vaguely waiting for the other shoe to drop. A truly horrible place. And while that is a truly horrible place, it is a place we have to be able to abide in as an act of love. The kind of act that really does 
make the world a better place? Even when we can't wrangle political machines and terrorist groups into restorative justice. After the fact, our conversation continued to expand for me and became a beautiful gift, a diamond. <laughs> Still rough, but quite precious. Partly because I learned something about the baby steps part of healing in the world. And as if on cue, the Holy Spirit dropped another gift into my lap as if to affirm. It's a poem, or maybe it isn't, by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And in closing, I offer it to you and to everyone who is stumbling toward what we hope will be a better world. It goes like this. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability. And it may take a long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time and grace will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give the benefit of believing that God's hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. <laughs>